I know, I'm a pumpkin. I keep hearing that. All right. It's okay. All right. Well, God is good all the time. Amen? amen. Remember, I'm the amen pastor. I need to hear some talking back. Or I'm going to think you're napping. All right. I need some interaction. Okay. Very good. Now, they're still hurting, but God's in control. Amen? amen? All right. Well, let's pray and let's get into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We worship and magnify your most holy name. You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, we know that none of us is here by chance this morning. We're here by divine appointment. We ask that your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty and a powerful way. There would not be the words or the opinions of man, but the word of God that would go forth with power. I pray we would leave here different than the way that we came. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to need it. Raise your hand. We'll get you one. Ushers will pass those out. I'm going to give you a little context. Before I do, can, some of you probably know this already. Be praying for the Massey family, Mike and Jen Massey. Some of you know uh, they went to have their baby on Tuesday after she carried the baby for nine months. The week before, she had found out that the baby was healthy. Everything was great. They get to the hospital with all their stuff, preparing to take a baby home. And when they hooked her up, the baby's heart wasn't beating. And she delivered a stillborn child, Kate. So be praying for them. Uh, I got a text at 5 in the morning. I spent much of the day with them at the hospital. I'll be doing the funeral on Tuesday. And again, we don't fully always understand what God's doing, but here's the good news. God is in control, and Kate is in heaven. Amen? And so praise God for that, but please pray for, for Mike and Jen Massey. Uh, you know, the Bible says we weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we should be holding up their hands. We're their family. Amen? All right, well, this morning, I want to give you some context. You go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to be looking at a story that's very familiar to probably all of us in the room. We're going to, last week, we looked at Daniel in the lion's den. This week, we're going to be looking at David and Goliath. But before we do, I want to give you some context. Because you've heard me say you take a text out of context, all you got left is a con. Amen? And so it's so important that we understand what's happening when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 17. So at the end of the book of Judges, it comes right before that. You have Joshua, Judges, Ruth. The time of Judges, it says that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There was no real heart for God anymore. They had started worshiping the false gods around them. They'd taken their eyes off the true and the living God. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, it tells us why. Because the word of God was rare in those days. So God's word was rare in those days. People were not seeking the Lord. They were not hearing from the Lord. The prophet who was, or excuse me, the priest who was the priest at that time was a priest by the name of Eli. Eli had two wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Eli was asleep at the switch. Uh, what does a priest do? He represents people to God and God to the people. He was the one that was to make the sacrifices for the people before God and then deliver the word of God from God to the people. And he was doing neither. Not only that, he was a horrible father. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were, who were the priest in line, who were serving with him in the temple, they were totally evil. And it says in the text that they did not know the Lord. So people in ministry that didn't know God. Again, does that sound familiar? Amen? Just because someone's a pastor, just because someone's on religious television, just because somebody you know, went to seminary doesn't make him a Christian. Amen? You know, being at church or being a pastor doesn't make you a Christian any more than jumping in the ocean makes you a fish, right? So the reality is that these guys were serving, well, they were taking advantage of people. People would come to bring their offerings and they would steal it. 
They would only give a portion to God, keep most for themselves. They were actually women who came into worship. They were sleeping with these women in the Holy of Holies. You want to talk about blasphemous. So this is what is happening. Well, in the middle of that, there's a woman named Hannah who cried out for a child. She comes. God gives her a child. She says, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him to the Lord. She had a child. His name was Samuel. Samuel, as a young boy, was given to Eli to take care of. God begins to speak through Samuel. As he speaks through Samuel, he tells Eli, you've lost your way. God, God desires that you get your eyes back on the Lord. Well, sadly, because of Hophni and Phinehas and their ungodliness, they go out into battle and they think they're going to manipulate God. So they take the ark, not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant, right? The ark that held the Ten Commandments where they came and they, they would sprinkle the blood. What it was supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. They took it out into battle with them, thinking they would manipulate God into giving them a victory. Instead, what happened is the Philistines captured the ark, took it away. Hophni and Phinehas were killed on the battlefield. And Eli, upon hearing that the ark had been taken and that his children were dead, his two boys were dead, it says he fell backward in his chair, he fell off, and he died. So now the priest is dead, his wicked sons are dead, and the ark is in the possession of the Philistines. Don't have time to go through it all, but the Philistines take the, the ark and they put it in with their false god, Dagon. You guys remember that story? Dagon is a... I, it's, disputed the god of the easy the fish god or the vegetable god but either way pretty lame amen <laughs> so they have the fish god and the vegetable god they put the ark in there and what happens is they come in the next day and dagon has fallen over next to the ark it fell down their god fell down if your god can fall down not a good god amen <laughs> so their god fell down so they put their god back up they come back in the next day he fell down his arms and legs are broken off and he's laying there in a heap and they then then what happens is they all break out in tumors the word for tumors there don't mean to be graphic as hemorrhoids yes it's in the bible read it okay but here's what happened they end up having hemorrhoids and they're like hey you know this art thing not working out so much for us Let's take that thing back and give it to Israel so they give the, they give the ark back to Israel Israel now has the ark again but now Israel at a time when they should have turned their eyes back on the Lord they go out and they fight the Philistines. They've lost the battle. Uh, at one point, uh, Phineas's wife has a, has a child and names him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And that's accurate because that's what was happening in Israel. The glory had departed. So at this time when they should have been crying out to God, God allows them to have some victory and they start to trust in themselves again. And they say, you know what we need? We need a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We need a king. You know why we need a king? Everybody else has a king. And if we only had a king, we wouldn't have these problems. Guys, you know who was their king? God. Amen? You know what? If God can be, you know, how about God for president? Amen? I'm all for that. You know, you can't vote God out of office. But here's what happens. Instead, what happens is that they cry out for a king, and then Samuel comes and tells them, if you get a king, here's what's going to happen to you. He is going to enslave your children. He's going to cause you problems. He's going to lead you away from God. And before it's over, you're going to cry out and say, get rid of this king. We do that sometimes in our elections, amen? We vote for people. We think they're going to be the answer. We find out not so much. Well, here's the reality is this is what happens. They cry out for Saul as king. And you know why they made Saul the king? Because he was good looking and he was taller than everybody else head and shoulders above everybody else, and they thought that would be a good champion for us. When we have to go out and fight a battle, this is the guy we want to march behind. And so they cry out for a king because everybody else had a king. Be careful that you don't try to pattern your life after the world around you. Amen? 
They wanted a king because everybody else had a king, not recognizing that they already had a king. Samuel says to them, you know what? God says to Samuel, let them have a king, but understand they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They were choosing a king over God as later they would choose Barabbas over Jesus. They choose the physical over the spiritual. Well, he becomes king, and in chapter 9, he starts off pretty well. Uh, This is uh, King Saul. He starts off pretty well by being humble, at least initially. He was a humble man, and when they, matter of fact, when they went to make him king, he hid in the equipment. He was hiding because he was a humble guy and kind of shy. But they brought him out, they made him king, and then he went out and he won a couple of battles. And they started to say, see, this is what we always needed. We needed a king. Now understand this, that God's permission or God's grace should not be confused with God's permission. God's patience shouldn't be confused with God's permission. Because they won a few battles didn't mean that he was, should have ever been king. But here's the grace of God. God speaks to Samuel. They go to the people and they say, okay, you blew it. You shouldn't have picked a king. But now that you have, if you will honor God from this point forward, if the king will honor God from this point forward, then I will bless you, even though this is not my perfect will, Pastor Dave abbreviation, this is my permissive will. But what he's telling them is, look, you wanted a king, you've got a king. If you'll honor God, I'll still bless you, even though you chose this king over me. So they chose this king because he was strong, he was humble, he had Samuel beside him, but then guess what happens? As soon as he wins a few victories, he gets full of himself. And he starts walking around, and he starts breaking the law. In chapter 13, what happens is he, he is getting ready to fight an enemy, and their enemy is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But in Israel, they would not go into battle before they made sacrifice. Well, Samuel hadn't showed up yet, so King Saul decides, well, I'll just do it. Guys, that's like someone else trying to take the cross. Amen? Only Jesus Christ could die because only Jesus Christ is perfect. And only the high priest, only the priest could make the sacrifice because he was a representation of Jesus Christ. So he went in and made the sacrifice himself. He was moved by his circumstances. He grew impatient with God and he went outside of God's will. In chapter 14, he makes a foolish vow. They're fighting and he's getting upset because of the way things are happening. Jonathan's getting too much credit. That's his godly son. So he makes a vow that anybody who eats prior to us killing our enemy is going to be put to death. His son Jonathan goes out and wipes out a bunch of the enemy, the Philistines. And as he's coming back, he dips his rod into some honey, takes a bite of it. King Saul finds out and wants to put his own son to death. This is what happens when we have a king who doesn't know God. Amen? This is what happens when we have somebody who can get filled with themselves. You know, one of the things that nauseates me about the whole political system is they all need to just get over themselves. Amen? You know, we need someone humble and broken and desperate. Well, King Saul now has got to a place where he's got a lot of authority. He's won some battles. And now God comes to him in chapter 15, even after he's been impatient with God, and even though he's been prideful and arrogant, And God commands him, and these are kinds of verses that people struggle with. He tells them in chapter 15 to go kill all the Amalekites. Now, sometimes we see this, and we as, you know, men and women say, well, that doesn't seem right, because he says to kill every man, woman, and child, wipe them off the face of the earth, until they understand who the Amalekites were. The Amalekites were this, this army of people, this group of people, who were a type or a picture of the flesh in the Bible. What they did is when they were coming out of the wilderness and they were wandering in the wilderness, the Amalekites would sneak up behind them and find the old, the sick, and the the young and slaughter them and take all their stuff. 
And God says in his word back in Deuteronomy, I've seen what you've done and I am going to bring judgment. I will not forget it. So hundreds of years have gone by. He's given Amalek a chance to repent. They haven't done it. So he tells King Saul, go wipe them all out. So King Saul, he's he makes it very clear, do not leave anyone alive, kill them all. So King Saul goes down, and instead of killing them all, he takes back all the sheep and all the oxen, which he wasn't supposed to take, he, and he brings back King Agag, okay, the king. He's got him on a chain, he's marching him through town, more prideful actions, and he's letting them know, look at me, I'm an awesome king, look at all the spoils I brought you. And then Samuel shows up, who had told him what God had said, and when he sees him, he says to him, did you do as the Lord commanded? And Saul said, oh yeah, I did exactly what God said. God, by the way, you can lie and you can say you did what God said, but God knows the truth, amen? amen. And what happened was he said, oh, I, I did all that God said. And it says in the text, this proves that God has a sense of humor. You hear, bah. He says, what is this sheep I hear? What is this oxen lowing? You were supposed to kill them all. Why are they here? And then he turns around and he blames everyone else. Oh, it was the people. They're the ones that brought it back. Guys, when you're confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent. Amen? He starts making excuses and accusing others. It wasn't me, it was them. I didn't do it. And then he finds out that Agag's there, the king. Now, Amalek being a type of the flesh, it's kind of like we get saved and we hold on to our pet sin. We got that one thing we want to keep. Well, here's what happens. Samuel comes in. He cuts Agag into small pieces. It's in the text, using the sword. How do we put the flesh to death with the word of God? But here's what else happens. He tells Saul, because of his disobedience, because of his pride, because he didn't honor God, that he would no longer be king. Your kingdom has been ripped from you and given to someone, your neighbor, who is better than you. So as we come to the chapter 16, David is going to be anointed king, but David is a teenager out tending the sheep who had no idea that God had such a high calling on his life. And they come to the house, Samuel comes to the house of Jesse and he says, you know what, one of your sons is going to be anointed king, God told me, and he starts bringing his boys out one after another, they're all big and handsome, you know, they're Saulettes, right, they're little Sauls, right, they're coming in one after the other, and these are not the guys, and God keeps saying, that's not him. Oh, and, and Samuel says, oh, surely this is him. That's not him. Finally, he says to his dad, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Well, I got one. The runt of the litter. He's out watching his sheep. Oh, get him. Bring him in here. He brings him in. And the Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And David was a man after God's own heart. He anoints David as king. But what's interesting to me, he anoints him as king. And right after he gets anointed as king, what does he do? He gets shipped right back out to watch the sheep. What you got to understand in those days is one of the lowest jobs you could get. You get to go out, I mean, watching sheep. Does that sound, does that sound thrilling to anyone here? <laughs> I want to watch sheep. Anybody put that down in your resume? What's your desire? I want to be a shepherd, right? Nobody. So here's what happens. He gets sent back to watch the sheep. Here's one other interesting point before we get to the text. One other interesting point is that he had the Holy Spirit in him, and it was so known that when King, the King Saul was, was, it said he had a distressing spirit where he couldn't sleep and he was tormented because God had been removed from him. God's hand had been removed from him. And David would come into Saul's home, and he would play worship, and when he played worship, Saul would be relieved and the distressing spirit would flee from him. And then Saul would go back and tend, to, or David would go back and tend the sheep. So that brings us to chapter 17. I know that's a lot, but I want to get that in there so we understand the context. Because we're about to see a one-sided battle 
between a physically over, overpowering uh, mighty warrior and a young, humble, spirit-filled shepherd boy. And as we're going to see in this text, that this is an a overwhelming battle. This is a one-sided battle, but it's one-sided depending on how you're looking at it. If you look at it from the physical perspective, you're going to say, what kind of odds would David get in this fight? If there were odds in Vegas, I mean, if this was an MMA fight, what would his chances be? Not real good, right? But if we look at it from a spiritual perspective, this is a puny man against the creator of the universe, amen? So the reality is, as we're about to see this one-sided battle, I want you to see all, all that's going on behind it, that God is doing his perfect will, and God has a plan, and God knows what he's doing. So if you're a note-taker this morning, I'm going to give you the quick outline. We'll get into the text. I know it's a lot of verses, but it's in story form. We'll get through it just fine. So David versus Goliath. First, we're going to see the overwhelming size of the enemy. Verses 1 through 10, the overwhelming size of the enemy. How many of you guys are facing some difficult circumstances in your life right now? And they seem overwhelming. Be it your health, your finances, whatever it might be, where you just think, man, this is beyond me. You know what? That's a good place to be sometimes. Because it keeps us desperate for the Lord. Amen? We quit trusting in ourselves. We get desperate for God. So first, the overwhelming size of the enemy. Number two, the fearful response of the physically focused. Guys, when we're focused on our circumstances, we're going to get overwhelmed really easy, and we're going to be defeated. The fearful response of the physically focused. I'll go back through these again as I'm teaching through it. Number three, the bold response of the Spirit-filled. David is filled with the Spirit of the living God. That's what it says about him. Everywhere he went, God went with him. And he's going to have a different response than the physically focused who see this giant and are petrified. Number four, we're going to see the world's criticism and caution toward those who boldly step out in faith. But guys, when you step out in faith, when God has a calling on your life and you tell your family, when you tell even other Christians sometimes that God is calling me to do this, they're going to try to cool your jets. Dude, really? You want to quit your job and be a full-time missionary? Really? Is that the best choice for you? You know, I've heard it said that the biggest stumbling block to Christian missionaries is Christian parents. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel as long as it's not my kids doing it. Amen, moms and dads sometimes? We'll support others, we'll pray for others. My son wants to go live in Africa? Not so much. But the exhortation here is that we, we need to understand there's going to be criticism come our way when we step out in faith. Number five, the spirit-filled man's faith is not in his own ability but in the power of God. It's not in my ability. I would, wouldn't you love to hear a candidate say, you know what, here's the truth. I can do nothing, but God can do everything. How great would that be? Amen? You know what, I can't do anything. You know what, I'm worthless and weak just like the rest of you. I'm in desperate need of a Savior, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend the next four years on my knees seeking God's face, asking for His help, and you know what, God will do great things if we'll su submit our lives to Him. Wow, how what amazing would that be? Amen? Well, that's what God's looking for. And a spirit-filled man's ability is not in his own ability, but in the power of God. Number six, the world tries to overcome spiritual attacks through worldly methods. This is why we are to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. Guys, the world has no answers for you. God has all the answers. Amen? Why would we go to someone who doesn't know God seeking answers when we're struggling in, in a lost and a dying world? You don't need their counsel. They need yours. Amen? You have Jesus. They don't. I don't get it. But here's the reality. Too often, we make that mistake. Final three points. We're going to see the contrast between the physical and spiritual perspective. We're going to see it very clearly by looking at David and Goliath. Number eight, putting feet to our faith. 
Guys, it's not just believing and then, you know, believing that there will be a victory, but it's acting like we know there's going to be one. It's stepping out in faith. It's not seeing and then believing. It's believing and then seeing, and that's what faith is. And then finally, the spirit-filled man remains humble even in victory. So we got a lot of verses here. Again, it's in story form. Let's begin. They're looking at David versus Goliath. First of all, the overwhelming size of the enemy. Look there in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered at Soko which belongs to Judah. They encamped in Soko at Azekah and Ephesdamon. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together in battle. Now Soko belonged to Israel. So they're in Israel's land. Those of you guys who are going to Israel in February, I've been there several times, and you will go and sit in the very place where this battle takes place. Hills are still there. On one side, you've got a hill on one side, it comes down, then you've got a creek that's dry most of the year except the rainy season, then it goes up the other side and there's another hill. And so in that territory, in Judah, where the Philistines shouldn't have been, if, if Saul had obeyed God and been faithful to do what God had called him to do, the Philistines would have been wiped out, but he didn't do it. So they're in the land and they're in, Judah's, they're in Israel's backyard and they're all mounted up. This huge army of men on this side. On the other side is the army of the children of Israel. So they're all mounted up. The battle is about to, to begin. Now what happens in this situation is, you know, they're, they're kind of, you know, when I played football in high school and in college, you know, prideful men take a moment like this where they're kind of sizing each other up, kind of checking each other out. They're looking across the way, beating on their chest, Right? I remember when I played, I remember my son played football, all three of my boys played a Monte Vista Christian, and, and there was a team that we played where they would come out and do, the, do this Samoan warrior dance, like right in front of you, right? Try to psych out the other team, you know, and that's what happens sometimes. So they're kind of like trying to psych each other out, and a lot of times it's because both sides are too afraid to do anything. But here's the reality, they're looking at each other, they're beating on each other's chest, they're screaming at each other, but the battle hasn't begun yet, as they're all marked up, ready, and knowing that Something is about to happen. So in the midst of all this, here we are in the valley of Elah with the armies mounted up on both sides. Look at verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. They encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up the battle array against the Philistines. Verse 3. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Now verse 4. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. His height, now Goliath means splendor, and he's from Gath, and many believe he's a descendant of the Anakim from uh, the time of Joshua 400 years earlier, and the word champion there in Hebrew literally means a middleman. So here's what he was. He was their champion, and they were going to send him down to challenge the champion from Israel to come and fight against him. Now let's talk about, about this giant. It says there, his height was six cubits and a span. Now, cubit is the distance from your top of your middle finger to the bottom of your elbow. So that means it's always going to be a little different. And a span is the span from here to here. So six cubits and a span could be anywhere from nine foot nine to 11 feet tall. This guy's huge. He makes Shaquille O'Neal look like a wimp, right? Can you imagine 11 feet tall? Now, we also know that his weight is estimated between 600 and 750 pounds. So 11 foot 750. Dude, get out of my way, right? So here we got 11 foot 750. But not only that, notice what it says about him. He had a bronze helmet on his head 
and was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels. So his armor weighed 175 pounds. So he's 11 foot 750 with 175 pounds worth of armor as he comes marching out. Notice what it says next. He had bronze armor on his legs, a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. So the spear itself was like the beam that would hold up a building. That's a big spear, right? And then it says this, and the iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. So the end of the spear, the spearhead, weighed 15 pounds. So this guy is holding up a beam with a 15-pound spearhead on it. He's 11 foot 750, wearing 175 pounds of armor. And you are not a wimp when you're walking around in 175 pounds of armor. And so this is the guy. This is, you know, if I'm on the Philistine side, you don't even have to have a vote. That's our dude right there. Yeah, get, send that guy. So he's their champion. He's their guy. Notice what he does. Notice verse 7. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And then, and then it says, a, chef, a shield bearer went before him. So it was actually two guys. He had to have a guy carrying his shields and stuff because he had so much stuff on him. So here he is, 11 foot 750. He's got another guy with him carrying his shields going before him. And now everybody over on Israel's side is all looking at each other like, who's fighting that guy? Not so much, right? Now let me ask you a question. If you're paying attention when I gave the context, who's Israel's champion right at this point? Saul. Remember, he's head and shoulders above everybody else, right? He's tall, he's good looking, he's a mighty warrior, right? He's their champion. That's the guy they wanted. But what did Saul just find out in the previous chapter? That God had taken the kingdom from him, that his days were numbered. Do you think he might have thought, this is going to be it right here? Right? I go down and fight 11 foot 750. God already said he's going to kill me. This is the Dude, I ain't going. I'm not going. I, time out. I'm not doing it. Call somebody else. So notice what, what happens with Goliath. Look at verse 8. He stood and cried out to the armies in Israel and said, Why do you come out and line up for battle? He's mocking them. Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. So instead of everybody getting killed, instead of this huge battle, you pick one guy, I'll be the champion. You beat me, we'll serve you. I destroy your guy, you all have to serve us. And he comes out and he challenges them to this battle. And notice what he says there in verse 10. And the Philistines said, and I can't even begin to do this, how deep do you think the voice is of a guy 11 foot 750? You know what I mean? I have no idea. Where's Ken Graves when you need him? He says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I bet it was about 50 octaves lower than that. And he comes down, I've been in that valley, and he marches down, and he's just challenging them. I defy you. And you know what would happen every time he would do that? Look at verse 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I get it. 11 foot 750 with a towering, booming voice like that, with a weaver's beam and a 15-pound spearhead, covered head to toe in armor, who's a trained warrior, who's, a, who's, two, who's, who's shack times two. Yeah, that would, that would make me scared. That would make me nervous. Well, they're all afraid. And we see the amount of confidence that they have in Goliath because, you know, they said, dude, go fight for us. We'll, we'll sign up for that. If you win, we win. If you lose, we lose. There's nobody as big as you. But here's the whole point. If Saul had been a man of the word, 
he would have went out and fought him. Because it says in Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, you're approaching a battle of your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is one who goes with you to fight against your enemies to save you. Guys, whatever circumstances you are facing, no matter how huge they seem, your God is greater. Amen? Guys, here's the reality. Your, your problems are only big if your God is small. But your problems are very small if you recognize how great your God is. Amen? I don't care if it's finances. I don't care if it's your health. I don't care if it's wayward kids. I don't care. Whatever you're going through, you're not alone. God goes through it with you. And greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? And you know what? If he had been looking from a spiritual perspective rather than a physical one, he would not have been so fearful. The power of God had left Saul, and this once brave man was now greatly afraid. You guys all need to know this. I need to know this. I need to be reminded of this. Fear, anxiety, and worry are all the opposite of faith. Why am I afraid? Because I forget who's in control. Why do I worry? Because I forget who holds the future. Amen? Why do I get anxious? Because I, I'm fearful of, of what's about to happen, forgetting again that God is with me in the midst of my circumstances. They were afraid, they were fearful, they were anxious. The physically focused people with a fleshly king were greatly afraid in light of their circumstances. And again, Satan uses those same tactics today to render you faithless and fearful when you operate in your own strength. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Amen? How many of you have struggled with fear, though, before? Raise your hand. My hand's up. Why do we do that? Because we get our eyes off of God and we put them on our circumstances. We quit looking at the creator of the universe and we look across the hill at 11 foot 750. And we think there's no way in the world I can defeat this guy. Now, something's about to change because David's going to come into the picture. Look at verse 12. Now, David was the son of that Epaphrite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul into battle. The names of the three sons in the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. So David gets left behind to take care of his dad and take care of the sheep. Everybody else is out fighting in the battle because they're big and strong. So they're all there. David's back home hanging out with his dad. Verse 15. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he would go and minister to Saul when he was in the temple and do worship for him. But then he would go back from time to time. And when he would go back, he would minister to his father. So he's there and it says there, but verse 16, And the Philistine drew new and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. So here's what's happening. They, they line up, they're looking across at each other, they're taunting each other, and 40 times in the morning and at night, Goliath would, I can't imagine what the ground sounded like when that guy was walking. <laughs> you just imagine, he gets down to the bottom, he looks up and says, I defy the army, send someone down. And every time he did it, the children of Israel responded. They did not respond in a faithful way, they responded in a wimpy way. You know, it's interesting that David was from Bethlehem, which is, you know, the city of David, what it's called. And, you know, Jesus is the bread of life and the son of David. 
And David is going to be God's man. And he's a picture here of the Lord, how he can triumph over the greatest difficulties that you could ever have. Now, it's interesting that he came down 40 days and 40 nights that we see Goliath come down and challenge them. In the Bible, 40 is the number of testing. Whenever you see 40, how many days was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? 40, 40 days and 40 nights. You know, how, how many days did it rain upon the earth? 40. Uh, in Israel, how many years did they wander in the wilderness? 40. So whenever you see 40, you see that there's a test that's taking place. Israel is being tested. Are they going to trust in their own physical strength? Are they going to cower in the face of the enemy? Or are they going to come to a place where they trust in God, they believe his word, that he goes before them into battle, and are they going to step out by faith? And they're just, you know what? Here's the reality. They just needed one guy to have that heart. Just one. Not an army full, just one guy who says, you know what God's word says? That he goes with us and he goes before us and this guy's nothing compared to God. And they're waiting for that guy. But you know what's happening? All the big yoke guys in town are there and they're all wimping out. All of them. But now David's going to show up. Look what it says there in verse 17. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. David's going to be the milkman. Get the cheese and the food, and take it back to the real warriors who are fighting, and go give it to them, and give some to the captain who's overseeing your big brothers, and then find out what's happening in the camp, and come back and tell us, little David. Little teenage runny David, little smaller than all your brothers, David. Just go and deliver the cheese and the food, that's all you're worth, and then come back and tell us, come back and tell me exactly what happens. So David gets this errand. Now, notice again in verse 19 Now Saul and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines, or getting ready to fight. Verse 20 So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things. And went as Jesse had commanded him. Now, one of the things I love about David, here he is, the anointed king of Israel. He could have said to his dad, I ain't delivered no cheese. You were here, I'm the king. Are you kidding me? You know what? You find out if somebody really has a servant's heart when someone treats them like one. Amen? And David had the heart of a servant. And everything he did, he was going to do as unto the Lord. And this is a word for us at work. You know, we ought to be the best workers in the building. Amen? We ought to work harder than anyone else, show up early, stay late, help your coworkers, be a Christ-like example in everything that you do that God might be glorified. Amen? And here's what happens. David has this errand. He doesn't, he's not mad while well, I'm the king. He gets up early in the morning. He makes sure the sheep are taken care of. I love that little detail. He's the shepherd. He goes and finds somebody. Take care of my sheep for me. I've got to run and deliver cheese to my brothers. Okay? And then he takes off and he goes, and notice what it says, that he rose early in the morning. And I love that. He came to the camp of the army that was going out to fight and shouting for battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. So here they are, they're posing, they're staring at each other. Goliath's coming up and down. And again, he went out as his father commanded. David went out as his father commanded. He was obedient to the will of his father, so too our Savior. So he ran 11 miles, got to where the battle was taking place, and guess what happened? I don't want you to miss this. When David shows up, the Holy Spirit enters the camp. Amen? 
for the very first time, the Holy Spirit is there. Because if anybody else had been walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, they would have done what David is about to do. So David shows up in the camp, and look, verse 22. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. So he continues. He's running. He's got the heart of a servant. He's going to be faithful. Verse 23. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words, so David heard him. So for the first time, someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what Goliath is saying. I defy the armies of Israel. He's mocking God. He's challenging David. He's defying the armies of Israel. But for the first time, somebody who's filled with the Holy Spirit hears these blasphemous words coming from this ungodly man. And David's going to have a different reaction than everyone else does. Now notice how the men respond. Look at verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So 40 days and 40 nights, every time he comes down, they all see him and they all run away. Now, do you think the Philistines are feeling pretty good right about now? Every time their champion goes down, they just see all the guys from Israel. They're all mounted up. Goliath comes down. They all run away. They're like, dude, we got this. Goliath, just go take care of them. We're going to sit back here and relax. And so the children of Israel, every time they see them, they're afraid. They're fearful. They're running in the other direction. Guys, here, this is the fearful response of the physically focused. This is what you, the trap you and I can fall into where we're overwhelmed by our circumstances and we just want to run away. You know what, Lord, I, don't, I, I give up. I've had people say that to me. You know what, if God would let this come into my life, I just don't trust him anymore. Guys, when we go through trials, we need to run to the Lord, not from the Lord. Amen? We need to be seeking him harder. We need to be holding on to him tighter. Sometimes God allows us to go through the trials because he cares more about our character than he does our comfort. Verse 25. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Do we see what he's trying to do here? Who's supposed to be the champion? Saul. And he says, God said, I'm dead. And I know if I go fight this guy, this is probably going to be it for me. So here's what I'm going to do. Anybody who will take my place and go out there and fight for me, I'll give him my daughter. Thanks, Dad, right? You can have my daughter. Go, I'll, what do you want? Anything you want. No taxes. Can you imagine? No taxes for the rest of your life, and you can have my daughter. Just go fight this guy. Just somebody somewhere, please take my place. I don't want to do this anymore. I know I'm going to be toasted if I try. I'll give you whatever you want. I think you could have gone to Saul and said, name your price. Because Saul knew your wealth means nothing. Your position means nothing if you're dead. So they tell David what, what has been said, and David speaks up in verse 26. He spoke to the men who stood by him saying, what? What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Now, I love this. If you underline stuff in your Bible, you should underline this next sentence. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now that sounds like a king, amen? That sounds like a spirit-filled godly man. Everybody else is right, running away. And he's like, who is this guy? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Circumcision was a mark of a man's covenant with God. 
Who is this man who has no covenant with God, who's coming into our backyard and coming down here and defying the armies of Israel and mocking the creator of the universe? Who is this clown anyway? Right? And you know what's happening? Is all the other guys are looking at him like, well, that's big talk for a little shepherd boy, right? You know, what are you going to do about it? Now, I believe he asked this question. He makes this statement because he wants everybody to know, I'll go do it. He doesn't care about the reward. He just wants someone to know there's someone in the camp who's not afraid of a giant. He doesn't see him as a fearful giant, but a rebellious pagan. He doesn't say, ooh, 11 foot 750 against little shepherd boy. He sees a mere man against the creator of the universe. God created him. God can wipe him out with a single word. Amen? And we get fearful of our circumstances. Oh, you know, I don't know. What am I going to do? It's so difficult. You know what? God's greater. Amen? And guys, we get to see the greatness of God when we surrender the difficulties of our lives. Verse 27, the people answered and said to him, so shall it be done for the one who kills him. Oh, if you kill him, you get this and this and this. Here's the bounty. It's what you get. Now, his brothers are standing by. They had already seen him anointed king. Now, how would you like to be the older brother? They come in to anoint the next king of Israel, and they pass right by you. You're the next big brother, they pass by you. You're the next big brother, they pass by you. And they go get the little runt out watching the sheep. And they bring him in and they pour oil over his head and say, here's your new king. You're not going to be liking this guy probably, especially if you're walking in the flesh and we know that these guys are. So now David is saying, what's the reward? Now watch his big brother. Because here's the point where world's, point number four, where the world's criticism uh, and caution towards those who boldly step out in faith. Notice how his brother responds. Look what he says. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. He said, why do you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and insolence of heart, for you've just come down to see a battle. You just came out to watch a fight. Go back and get to your sheep, cheese boy, right? Go back and and do what we know the only thing you, you can do. They're angered by David's inquiry and his bold statements. And again, even though they had seen him anointed king. Guys, many times we make a stand for God, there'll be those who tell us we can't do it. Can I encourage you, if God tells you to do something, do it no matter what anybody else tells you. Amen? You plus God is a majority. 10,000 people could tell you you shouldn't do it. If God tells you to do it, go do it and do it with all your heart and honor him. And you know what? When you're obedient, God is glorified and you get blessed. Amen? God's looking for obedience. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole earth, seeking one. He can show himself strong on account of one whose heart is loyal to him. Look at verse 29, and I love David's response. He says, and David said, what have, what have I done now? So we can tell that's, this has happened before, Right? He's talking to his, okay, big brothers, what have I done now? What do I do now? I don't think he said in that tone. What have I done now? Now notice what he says. Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason for us to be upset? This guy's coming down and challenging our God in our backyard. He's mocking the creator of the universe. You should all be as upset as I am. Isn't there a reason to be upset? Verse 30. Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. They all made fun of him. Who are you? You can't do anything. Why don't you just go back to your sheep? Verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. Now Saul's probably jumping up and down. Somebody said they might be willing to go fight. Where is he? Go get him, go get him, go get him. 
He might change his mind. Get him in here quick, right? Now, you, can you imagine the disappointment when he thinks it's going to be another yoke soldier ready to fight and then watch the shepherd boy? Little teenage guy who was delivering cheese, right? He's not wearing any armor. He comes walking in. It says he's ready. A little redheaded kid comes walking in. I'll do it. <laughs> so I was like, really? I mean, I want to send somebody out there, but come on now. Really? Now, David's got to sell himself, and I love how I love David's heart. Look what it says, verse 32. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. I'll do it. Nobody else wants to do it. He may have been the smallest guy in the camp, but he had the Holy Spirit, which made him the greatest man for the job. Amen? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Does any wonder that he was the one that was anointed king? And Saul said to David, you're not able to fight against this Philistine. You can't fight with him, for you're a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. Saul's saying, you're a kid. You're just a kid. You can't fight this guy. He's way too big for you. He's, been, he's killed more people than you are tall. You know, he's, he's, fought, he's been fighting battles his whole life. You're a runt. You can't fight him. Now watch the spirit mill, point number five. The spirit-filled man's faith is not in his own ability, but in the power of God. Watch how David responds. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep your father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Wow. A lion takes a sheep. You know what I do? Oh, we got one less, right? Oh, well, hope that didn't happen again. Hope he's full now, right? But what does David do? Shepherd boy, mindful, no one is watching. And David runs down, chases the lion down, gets the sheep back, kills the sheep. I mean, kills the lion, kills him, pulls on his beard. Really? That's about the last. I'm not going to the zoo pulling any lion's beard. How about you? And here's this guy. You know what it is? Because he recognized once again, even when nobody was watching, that God was on his side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And guys, reputation is who we are when everyone's watching. Character is who you are when no one is watching. And the reason David was bold and David was unafraid, he had seen God deliver the lion. He had seen God give him the strength and the power to overcome the bear. And he knew, you know what? God's been for me already. God will continue to be for me going forward. Guys, when we step out in faith and God shows up in a mighty way, doesn't it give us more faith to step out the next time? Amen? But if we're fearful and we never step out, we're always going to miss out on God's highest. Just remember, whatever you're going through today is preparation for what's next. David was fighting these animals in anonymity, and now he's going to fight a giant in front of everybody. He's doing something that nobody sees, and now he's going to do something that everybody sees. But God was preparing him in that quiet time when it was just him and the Lord, when he was worshiping God. Guys, and whatever you're going through now, God is preparing you for what is next. Guys, that's when our character is built, is when we're in the midst of great trials and difficulties. Look at verse 36. Your servant has killed both lion and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. David doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to be victorious because I'm a great warrior. He says, I'm going to be victorious because God is on my side. Because I'm going out with the Lord. I'm just going to be a tool in the hand of my master. And you watch out and see what happens when God is for you. Moreover, David said, the Lord delivered me, delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. 
God bless you, young man. Go to it. I'll be back here hanging out. Let me know how it works out for you. Go and the Lord be with you. He didn't say, I'll go and the Lord will be with me. You go and the Lord be with you. Point number six, the world tries to overcome spiritual attacks through worldly methods. Look at verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor. Now, remember, Saul is head and shoulders above everybody else. I don't know how much his armor weighed, but it might have weighed as much as David. So you can imagine, you know, it's kind of like you see a little kid put his dad's suit on, right? He puts his jacket on, like swallows him up. I can imagine, you know, David's standing there. He puts on the armor of the king, and he's, you know, he's standing, really? He put his helmet on, and he's like, there's no way, but he's trying to armor him up. Here's why. Because the world thinks, when we look at physical things from a physical perspective, that we can only overcome it through physical strength, through physical ways. But the truth is, you can defeat a giant on your knees better than you ever can covered in armor. Amen? And that's what God's calling, us, calling him to do, is just trust the Lord. So he puts all this armor on him. He also clothed, put on a bronze helmet on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested him. And David said, I can't walk with these, for I've not tested him. So David took all the armor off. You know why? Because his faith wasn't in the armor. His faith was in his Savior. Point number seven, contrast between the physical and spiritual perspective. So then he took the staff in his hand, verse 40, and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came, began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. So it's two against one. Okay, don't miss this. I bet the armor bearer was twice David's size. So here comes two guys. One guy's 11 foot 750. The other one's twice the size of David holding his armor. They come marching down. He says, hey, can you imagine Goliath? They finally found someone to fight you. Good, let's get this done. He goes down there and looks, and down comes David, the little ruddy shepherd boy. Can you imagine? No armor. I have no idea. Five, five, a buck 30, right? Standing there, and he looks down. He's like, Really? This is who's fighting me? Now, again, if you put this up on MMA and you saw them about to fight, right? And they, out they came, 11 foot 750, covered in armor with a, you know, a weaver's beam for a spear with a 15-pound spearhead and, and a little guy coming out there in a loincloth and some rocks. <laughs> really? 10 million to one, and no one's taking that bet. This guy, again, from the physical perspective, it looks overwhelming. Now, a lot of times people have asked this question, why do you think he took five stones? He only needs one, right? He trusts, because Goliath had one brother and three sons. And if you killed somebody, you had to take on their whole family. He's like, okay, one for Goliath, one for his brother, and here's for the boys. I'm ready. Now, that's faith, amen? I I had a rock that I got from... uh, I used to hand it out whenever I would teach this chapter, and somebody decided to take it home with them one time. So I don't have it anymore. But I actually brought back a rock that may be about the size he used, and here's a smooth stone, and he takes these five stones, he's got them in his hands. Now watch how Goliath's going to react. Verse 42, And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Ooh. You cursed me by the vegetable god that fell over and broke in pieces, that one? Yeah, I'm shaking, right? Right? Here's the reality. Guys, I don't care. You can curse me by any god you want to because there are no other gods. Amen? 
There's only one true and living God. We have nothing to fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear. He comes down and gives him the voodoo shant, whatever, woo, right? He doesn't care. I'm not worried about that. And here's David's response. Now watch what the Philistine says first. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David, can you imagine the difference in the octaves on their voice? Come on, you know, David's like, you know what? (laughs) Watch what he says. You come with me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, which you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give your carcass to the camp of the Philistines and the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all in the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He doesn't say, I'm going to come down and whip you so everybody will know that I'm the anointed king and I'm great. He says, I'm going to do this so that everyone will know that our God is God and your vegetable God, your fish God, who fell over and broke into pieces, is not God. Amen? We need men like this. We see the contrast. David sees a mere man against a true and living God. He has a spiritual perspective, not a physical one. Now notice, he's going to put feet to his faith. He says in verse 47, that all his assembly shall know the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is, is the Lord. He will give you into my hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and drew near to David, David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Now, I love this. David's not hanging back. He's not hiding behind a rock. He's not trying to, you know, throw a sling at him from the side. He runs right at him, full force, trusting that God will deliver him. Guys, when you're facing a trial of life, let's not hide from it, run from it, be afraid. Let's run right toward it, trusting that God will deliver us. Amen? And here's what happens. David runs toward him. Then look at verse 49. He put his hand into the bag and took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the, the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. Now, I, lo- I would love a video of this. How about you? He's coming in. He's got an armor bearer in front of him. They're coming toward him. And David runs up. He's got a sling. He lets it go. It's not a lucky shot. It's a God shot. Amen? Because there's very few spots in this guy's whole body that aren't covered. There's one right here. He's got armor. And it goes right underneath. It hits him in the forehead. And he's dead on his feet. Man, I like that. Amen? You're not supposed to. I love that. I think it's awesome. And what happened? Can you imagine the sound that it made when that, that 11-foot 750 hit the ground? Right? It's just, I just see it in slow motion. Here he is falling, and he hits the ground. Flood! be like a small earthquake, right? The dust is kicking up in the air. All the Philistines are in shock. What's happening? Now notice what happens. Watch. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in his hand. So David ran and stood over the Philistine, took the sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. So the dust kicks up. I just imagine the dust is kicking him up. They're all watching what just happened. They look down as the dust is clearing. Here's this kid. The sword weighs more than he does. He's holding it up. He drops it on his head. Can you imagine how heavy his head was as he picked up his head and he's holding it in his hand? He's probably doing this, standing on him. The dust clears. Everybody looks and sees the little guy holding the head of Goliath in his hand. You've got to be kidding me. What an awesome sight. See the Bible, man. It rocks. Amen? Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. I guess so. So they arose. What does that mean they were doing before that? Dude, Goliath's going to tear him up and we've got to be ready to run, man. 
I don't need that. Here, let's get ready. Let's point our feet this way. And then all of a sudden he gets hit. He drops. He's on the ground. David's holding up his head. And all of a sudden, have you ever noticed when someone else is bold in their faith that makes you more bold? Amen? You're going to say something at a family meeting or at work, and you're about to share it, say something, and then someone else says something, all of a sudden you're like, yeah. Amen, I agree with that, right? Amen, here's what happens. The guy hits the ground, their champion is dead, and watch what happens. And I love this part because we see that he put feet to his faith, and now it's going to impact the entire army around him. The men of Israel, it says there, and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley of the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road in Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the children of Israel were turned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. You know what David was doing? He was being a constant reminder of the greatness of his God. Guys, God allows us to go through trials that we might remember how great he is. And he brought that armor, and every time he would doubt, every time he would struggle, he'd just look over at that armor and go, my God took care of that, he can take care of this. My God took care of that giant, he can take care of whatever I'm facing. Verse 55, we're almost done. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, whose son is this youth? says your soul lives king i don't know he's unknown now he'd been in there and he played worship and helped the king but the king's already forgotten but i have an idea the king's doing this right about now what do you think who the king's dead and all i got to do is give him my daughter and free taxes no problem i'll sign up for that program every time so the king inquired whose son is this man that david returned from the slaughter of the philistine abner took him and brought him before saul and the head of the philistines now i love this Because here's where we see that a spirit-filled man remains humble, even in victory. And Saul said to him, whose son are you? So he answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. David didn't say, you know what, I'm the anointed king. We just proved it all. God's with me. You were out hiding and cowering and wimping out. I went out and did your job for you. So why don't you just hand over the crown and get on down the road, pal? Because I'm really the king. You know it. I know it. Now everybody knows it. Get over yourself. That's what a prideful man would have done, right? David says, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Because you know what? He recognized God did it all. All he did was show up. And God gets all the glory and God gets all the honor. And he's going to remain humble before the Lord so that he can be used for the Lord in the future. So in closing, David is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ in many ways. David's name means beloved. And Jesus is, is God's beloved son. Both were born in Bethlehem, the house of David. Both were rejected by their people, at least initially. David was anointed king years before he was permitted to reign, just as Christ is king now, but does not reign on the earth until Satan is banished. David was sent to the battlefield by his father, and Christ was sent by his father into the world. David is a man after God's own heart. And you know what? That same Holy Spirit that lives in David lives in you and me. Amen? And that same Holy Spirit that faced 11 foot 750 can help you to face whatever you're going through right now because our God is greater than any circumstances that we will ever face. Amen? So, there'll be people here to pray with you if you need prayer afterward. A couple things as we close. I know we're, we're over by a minute, two minutes. God brought you here by divine appointment this morning. God knows exactly what you're facing and what you're going through. I had the whole Bible to pick to choose from, and God drew me this chapter 
because he knew you were going to be here. He wants you to know that he loves you, that he's for you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You can trust God no matter what you're facing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you and worship and magnify your most holy name. You are a great and an awesome God. And we thank you, Lord, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Lord, may we not walk around in fear and anxiety and worry, but Lord, may we trust in you. Lord, no matter what giants people may be facing today, stage four cancer, children away from you, marriages falling apart, finances that seem overwhelming, God, we know you're greater than all of that. And we come before you humbly and we ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would move and you would deliver us from the struggles and trials of this life. Lord, that you would help us not to run in fear, but to run to you, to seek you. And Lord, when you would call us, that we would run toward the difficulties of this life and not from them. Lord, I pray your blessings upon every marriage that is here, every family, every individual that's going through difficulties and struggles. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you can give us victory over drugs and alcohol. You can give us victory over pornography. You can give us victory over whatever that giant is, whatever that thing in our life is that we need to put to death. Lord, help us by your strength. Lord, we need more men and women like David who love you so much that they're unashamed to stand for you when nobody else will. Lord, be glorified. Go with us now in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for your patience. We went through a lot of verses. People here to pray with you if you need prayer. God bless you.